What exactly lies beyond the treacherous and previously impassable Canadian glacier? Robert W. Chambers, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to all of our listeners and supporting members who help to keep us going. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. It's a seriously great deal and helps us to keep doing what we're doing. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. Today's story is by Robert W. Chambers, whose most famous collection of short stories, The King in Yellow, influenced many writers of weird fiction in his day, including H.P. Lovecraft. I've taken the liberty of naming today's story Beyond the Broken Glacier. It comprises chapters 6 to 8 in his book In Search of the Unknown. This book contains several stories about strange, fabled, and unknown creatures encountered by a secretary of the Zoological Gardens in Bronx Park, New York. We heard the first story in this collection a while ago, The Harbor Master, which inspired the film The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Today's story has some playful humor in it, and also touches on the lost world genre, which I am rather fond of. I hope you enjoy it. Now for our personal moment. It's kind of official. I don't have school spirit. And I figured it out the hard way. Freshman orientation for my daughter. So we go in there, freshman orientation, to find out, you know, what high school is all about. And we found out. We couldn't even get into the auditorium without going through like a gauntlet of kids in sweaters with letters on them. And then they also had the jazz band playing really loud in your face. You couldn't even get in there without being barraged by all of this terrifying noise. So after we were all completely shell-shocked, we went inside and listened to all of the orientation about how wonderful the school is, it's the best in the whole world, and that's that's great. We were all still waiting and afraid for, like, what was next going to happen. And then we found out, at the end, when everybody stood up and got to go, then a whole bunch of kids come out onto the stage, and they start playing the percussion section of the jazz band up there to, like, boom, 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 get you to go out the door. So, it's official. I have no school spirit. I think all of those kids are wonderful, thrilled that everybody has their thing, By all means, do your thing. But I just want to know when you're going to start because I want to put some ear protection in. Just saying. So that's our personal moment. Thank you very much. And now, Beyond the Broken Glacier by Robert W. Chambers. Chapter 6 
Before I proceed any further, common decency requires me to reassure my listeners concerning my intentions, which, heaven knows, are far from flippant. To separate fact from fancy has always been difficult for me, but now that I have had the honor to be chosen secretary of the zoological gardens in Bronx Park, I realize keenly that unless I give up writing fiction, nobody will believe what I write about science. Therefore, it is to a serious and unimaginative public that I shall hereafter address myself, and I do it in the modest confidence that I shall neither be distrusted nor doubted, although, unfortunately, I still write in that irrational style which suggests covert frivolity, for which I am undergoing a course in treatment in English literature at Columbia College. Now, having promised to avoid originality and confine myself to facts, I shall tell what I have to tell concerning the dingo, the mammoth, and something else. For some weeks, it has been rumored that Professor Farrago, president of the Bronx Park Zoological Society, would resign to accept an enormous salary as manager of Barnum and Bailey's Circus. He was now with the circus in London, and had promised to cable his decision before the day was over. I hoped he would decide to remain with us. I was his secretary and particular favorite, and I viewed without enthusiasm the advent of a new president, who might shake us all out of our congenial and carefully excavated ruts. However, it was plain that the trustees of the society expected the resignation of Professor Farrago, for they had been in secret session all day, considering the names of possible candidates to fill Professor Farrago's large, old-fashioned shoes. These preparations worried me, for I could scarcely expect another chief as kind and considerate as Professor Leonidas Farrago. That afternoon in June, I left my office in the administration building in Bronx Park and strolled out under the trees for a breath of air. But the heat of the sun soon drove me to seek shelter under a little square arbor, a shady retreat covered with purple wisteria and honeysuckle. As I entered the arbor, I noticed that there were three other people seated there, an elderly lady with masculine features and short hair, a younger lady sitting beside her, and farther away, a rough-looking young man reading a book. For a moment, I had an indistinct impression of having met the elder lady somewhere, and under circumstances not entirely agreeable. But beyond a stony and indifferent glance, she paid no attention to me. As for the younger lady, she did not look at me at all. She was very young, with pretty eyes, a mass of silky brown hair, and a skin as fresh as a rose which had just been rained on. With that delicacy peculiar to lonely scientific bachelors, I modestly sat down beside the rough young man, although there was more room beside the younger lady. Some lazy loafer reading a penny dreadful, I thought, glancing at him. Then at the title of his book, Hearing me beside him, he turned around and blinked over his shabby shoulder, and the movement uncovered the page he had been silently conning. The volume in his hands 
was Darwin's famous monograph on the monodactyl. He noticed the astonishment on my face and smiled uneasily, shifting the short clay pipe in his mouth. I guess, he observed, that this here book is too much for me, mister. It's rather technical, I replied, smiling. Yes, he said, in vague admiration. It's fierce, ain't it? After a silence, I asked him if he would tell me why he had chosen Darwin as a literary pastime. Well, he said placidly, I was trying to read about animals, but I'm up against a word-slinger this time, all right. Now, here's a gum-twister, and he painfully spelled out M-O-N-O-D-A-C-T-Y-L, breathing hard all the while. Monodactyl, I said, means a single-toed creature. He turned the page with alacrity. Is that the beast he's talking about? he asked. The illustration he pointed out was a woodcut representing Darwin's reconstruction of the dingo from the fossil bones in the British Museum. It was a well-executed woodcut, showing a dingo in the foreground and, to give scale, a mammoth in the middle distance. Yes, I replied, that is the dingo. I've seen one, he observed calmly. I smiled and explained that the dingo had been extinct for some thousands of years. Oh, I guess not, he replied with cool optimism. Then he placed a grimy forefinger on the mammoth. I've seen them things, too, he remarked. Again, I patiently pointed out his error and suggested that he referred to the elephant. Elephant be blowed, he replied scornfully. I guess I know what I seen, and I seen that there thing you call a dingo, too. Not wishing to prolong a futile discussion, I remained silent. After a moment he wheeled around, removing his pipe from his hard mouth. "'Did you ever hear tell of Graham's Glacier?' he demanded. "'Certainly,' I replied, astonished. "'It's the southernmost glacier in British America.' "'Right,' he said. "'And did you ever hear tell of the Hudson Mountains, mister?' "'Yes,' I replied. "'What's behind them? he snapped out. "'Nobody knows,' I answered. They are considered impassable. They ain't, though, he said doggedly. I've been behind them. Really, I replied, tiring of his yarn. Yes, really, he repeated sullenly. Then he began to fumble and search through the pages of his book until he found what he wanted. Mister, he said, just read that out loud, please. The passage he indicated was the famous chapter beginning, Is the mammoth extinct? Is the dingo extinct? Probably, and yet the aborigines of British America maintain the contrary. Probably both the mammoth and the dingo are extinct, but until expeditions have penetrated and explored not only the unknown region in Alaska, but also that hidden tableland beyond the Graham Glacier and the Hudson Mountains, it will not be possible to definitely announce the total extinction of either the mammoth or the dingo. When I had read it, slowly for his benefit, he brought his hand down smartly on one knee 
and nodded rapidly. Mister, he said, that gent knows a thing or two, and don't you forget it. Then he demanded abruptly how I knew he hadn't been behind the Graham Glacier. I explained. Shucks, he said. There's a road five miles wide into that there table land. Mister, I ain't been in New York long. I come into port a week ago on the Arctic Bell, whaler. I was in the Hudson Range when that there Graham Glacier bust up. What? I exclaimed. Didn't you know it? He asked. Well, maybe it ain't in the papers, but it busted all right. Blowed up by an earthquake and volcano combined. And, mister, it was awful. My, how I did run. Do you mean to tell me that some convulsion of the earth has shattered the Graham Glacier? I asked. Convulsions? Yes. And fits, too, he said sulkily. The whole blamed thing dropped into a hole. And say, mister, home and mother is good enough for me now. I stared at him stupidly. Once, he said, I catched pelts for them sharps at Hudson Bay, like any yaller husky. But the things I seen after that convulsion fit, the things I seen behind the Hudson Mountains, don't make me hanker after no life on the prairie wild, let me tell you. I may be a mother carry chicken, but this chicken has got enough. After a long silence, I picked up his book again and pointed at the picture of the mammoth. What color is it? I asked. Kind of red and brown, he answered promptly. It's woolly, too. Astounded, I pointed to the dingo. One toad, he said quickly. Makes a noise like a bell when it's scuttering about. Intensely excited, I laid my hand on his arm. My society will give you a thousand dollars, I said, if you pilot me inside the Hudson Tableland and show me either a mammoth or a dingo. He looked me calmly in the eye. Mister, he said slowly, have you got a million for to squander on me? No, I said suspiciously. Because, he went on, it wouldn't be enough. Home and mother suits me now. He picked up his book and rose. In vain I asked his name and address. In vain I begged him to dine with me, to become my honored guest. Net, he said shortly, and shambled off down the path. But I was not going to lose him like that. I rose and deliberately started to stalk him. It was easy. He shuffled along, pulling on his pipe and I after him. It was growing a little dark, although the sun still reddened the tops of the maples. Afraid of losing him in the falling dusk, I once more approached him and laid my hand upon his ragged sleeve. Look here, he cried, wheeling about. I want you to quit following me. Don't I tell you money can't make me go back to them mountains? And as I attempted to speak, he suddenly tore off his cap and pointed to his head. His hair was white as snow. That's what's come a monkeying into your cursed mountains, he shouted fiercely. There's things in there what no Christian ought to see. Let me alone or I'll bust you. He shambled on, doubled fists swinging by his side. 
The next moment, setting my teeth obstinately, I followed him and caught him by the park gate. At my hail he whirled around with a snarl, but I grabbed him by the throat and backed him violently against the park wall. You invaluable ruffian, I said. Now you listen to me. I live in that big stone building, and I'll give you a thousand dollars to take me behind the Graham Glacier. Think it over, and call on me when you are in a pleasanter frame of mind. If you don't come by noon tomorrow, I'll go to the Graham Glacier without you. He was attempting to kick me all the time, but I managed to avoid him, and when I had finished I gave him a shove which almost loosened his spinal column. He went reeling across the sidewalk, and when he had recovered his breath and his balance, he danced with displeasure and displayed a vocabulary that astonished me. However, he kept his distance. As I turned back into the park, satisfied that he would not follow, the first person I saw was the elderly, stony-faced lady of the Wisteria Arbor advancing on tiptoe. Behind her came the younger lady with cheeks like a rose that had been rained on. Instantly it occurred to me that they had followed us, and at the same moment I knew who the stony-faced lady was. Angry but polite, I lifted my hat and saluted her, and she, probably furious at having been caught tiptoeing after me, cut me dead. The younger lady passed me with face averted, but even in the dusk I could see the tip of one little ear turn scarlet. Walking on hurriedly, I entered the administration building and found Professor Lassard of the reptilian department preparing to leave. Don't you do it, I said sharply. I've got exciting news. I'm only going to the theater, he replied. It's a good show. Adam and Eve, there's a snake in it, you know. It's in my line. I can't help it, I said, and I told him briefly what had occurred in the arbor. But that's not all, I continued savagely. Those women followed us, and who do you think one of them turned out to be? Well, it was Professor Small of Barnard College, and I'll bet every pair of boots I own that she starts for the Graham Glacier within a week. Idiot that I was, I exclaimed, smiting my head with both hands. I never recognized her until I saw her tiptoeing and craning her neck to listen. Now she knows about the glacier. She heard every word that young ruffian said, and she'll go to the glacier if it's only to forestall me. Professor Lassard looked anxious. He knew that Miss Small, professor of natural history at Barnard College, had long desired an appointment at the Bronx Park Gardens. It was even said she had a chance of succeeding Professor Farrago as president, but that, of course, must have been a joke. However, she haunted the gardens, annoying the keepers by persistently poking the animals with her umbrella. On one occasion, she sent us word that she desired to enter the tiger's enclosure for the purpose of making experiments in hypnotism. Professor Farrago was absent, but I took it upon myself to send back word that I feared the tigers might injure her. The miserable small boy who took my message informed her that I was afraid she might injure the tigers, and the unpleasant incident almost cost me my position. 
I am quite convinced, said I to Professor Lessard, that Miss Small is perfectly capable of abusing the information she overheard, and of starting herself to explore a region that by all the laws of decency, justice, and prior claim belongs to me. Well, said Lessard with a peculiar laugh, it's not certain whether you can go at all. Professor Farrago will authorize me, I said confidently. Professor Farrago has resigned, said Lessard. It was a bolt from a clear sky. Good heavens, I blurted out. What will become of the rest of us, then? I don't know, he replied. The trustees are holding a meeting over in the administration building to elect a new president for us. It depends on the new president what becomes of us. Lassard, I said hoarsely. You don't suppose that they could possibly elect Miss Small as our president, do you? He looked at me askance and bit his cigar. I'd be in a nice position, wouldn't I? said I anxiously. The lady would probably make you walk the plank for that tiger business, he replied. But I didn't do it! I protested with sickly eagerness. Besides, I explained to her. He said nothing, and I stared at him, appalled by the possibility of reporting to Professor Small for instructions next morning. See here, Lessard, I said nervously. I wish you would step over to the administration building and ask the trustees if I may prepare for this expedition, will you? He glanced at me sympathetically. It was quite natural for me to wish to secure my position before the new president was elected, especially as there was a chance of the new president being Miss Small. You are quite right, he said. The Graham Glacier would be the safest place for you if our next president is to be the Lady of the Tigers. And he started across the park, puffing his cigar. I sat down on the doorstep to wait for his return, not at all charmed with the prospect. It made me furious, too, to see my ambition nipped with the frost of a possible veto from Miss Small. If she is elected, thought I, there is nothing for me but to resign, to avoid the inconvenience of being shown the door. Oh, I wish I had allowed her to hypnotize the tigers. Thoughts of crime flitted through my mind. Miss Small would not remain president or anything else very long if she persisted in her desire for the tigers. And then when she called for help, I would pretend not to hear Aroused from criminal meditation by the return of Professor Lessard, I jumped up and peered into his perplexed eyes. They've elected a president, he said, but they won't tell us who the president is until tomorrow. You don't think, I stammered. I don't know, but I know this. The new president sanctions the expedition to the Graham Glacier and directs you to choose an assistant and begin preparations for four people. Overjoyed, I seized his hand and said, Hooray! in a voice weak with emotion. The old dragon isn't elected this time, I added triumphantly. By the way, he said, who is the other dragon with her in the park this evening? 
I described her in a more modulated voice. Phew, observed Professor Lassard. That must be her assistant, Professor Dorothy Van Twiller. She's the prettiest blue stocking in town. With this curious remark, my confrere followed me into my room and wrote down the list of articles I dictated to him. The list included a complete camping equipment for myself and three other men. Am I one of those other men? inquired Lessard with an unhappy smile. Before I could reply, my door was shoved open and a figure appeared at the threshold, cap in hand. What do you want? I asked sternly, but my heart was beating high with triumph. The figure shuffled. Then came a subdued voice. Mister, I guess I'll go back to the Graham Glacier along with you. I'm Billy Spike, and it kind of scares me to go back to them Hudson Mountains. But somehow, mister, when you choked me and kind of walked me off on my ear, why, mister, I kind of took to your like. There was absolute silence for a minute. Then he said, So, if you go, I guess I'll go too, mister. For a thousand dollars? For nothing, he muttered. Or what you like. All right, Billy, I said briskly. Just look over those rifles and ammunition and see that everything's sound. He slowly lifted his tough young face and gave me a dog-like glance. They were hard eyes, but there was gratitude in them. You'll get your throat slit, whispered Lessard. Not while Billy's with me, I replied cheerfully. Late that night, as I was preparing for pleasant dreams, a knock came on my door and a telegraph messenger handed me a note, which I read, shivering in my bare feet, although the thermometer marked eighty Fahrenheit. You will immediately leave for the Hudson Mountains via Wellman Bay, Labrador, there to await further instructions. Equipment for yourself and one assistant will include following articles. Here began a list of camping utensils, scientific paraphernalia, and provisions. The steamer Penguin sails at five o'clock tomorrow morning. Kindly find yourself on board at that hour. Any excuse for not complying with these orders will be accepted as your resignation. Susan Small, President, Bronx Zoological Society. Lassard, I shouted, trembling with fury. He appeared at his door, chastely draped in pajamas, and he read the insolent letter with terrified alacrity. What are you going to do? Resign? he asked, much frightened. Do? I snarled, grinding my teeth. I'm going. That's what I'm going to do. But, but you can't get ready and catch that steamer, too, he stammered. He did not know me. Chapter 7 And so it came about that one calm evening towards the end of June, William Spike and I went into camp under the southerly shelter of that vast granite wall called the Hudson Mountains, there to await the promised 
further instructions. It had been a tiresome trip by steamer to Anticosti, from there by schooner to Widgeon Bay, then down the coast and up the Cape Clear River to Port Porpoise. There we bought three pack mules and started due north on the Great Fur Trail. The second day out, we passed Fort Boise, the last outpost of civilization. And on the sixth day, we were traveling eastward under the granite mountain parapets. On the evening of the sixth day out from Fort Boise, we went into camp for the last time before entering the unknown land. I could see it already through my field glasses, and while William was building the fire, I climbed up among the rocks above and sat down, glasses leveled, to study the prospect. There was nothing either extraordinary or forbidding in the landscape which stretched out beyond. To the right, the solid palisade of granite cut off the view. To the left, the palisade continued, an endless barrier of sheer cliffs crowned with pine and hemlock. But the interesting section of the landscape lay almost directly in front of me. A rent in the mountain wall, through which appeared to run a level, arid plain, miles wide, and as smooth and even as a high road. There could be no doubt concerning the significance of that rent in the solid mountain wall, and moreover, it was exactly as William Spike had described it. However, I called to him, and he came up from the smoky campfire, axe on shoulder. Yep, he said, squatting beside me. The Graham Glacier used to meander through that there hole, but something went wrong with the earth's innards, and there was a bust-up. And you saw it, William? I said with a sigh of envy. Eh? Seen it? Sure I seen it. I was to Spoutin' Springs twenty mile west, with a bale of blue fox and otter pelt. First I know them geysers begun for to groan egregious-like, and I seen the caribou gallopin' hell-bent south. This climate, says I, is too bracin' for me. So I struck a back trail and landed into a hill. Then them geysers blowed up, one after the next, and I heard something kind of cave in between here and China. I disremember things what happened. Something throwed me down. But I couldn't stay there, for the blamed ground was running like a river, all wavy-like, and the sky hit me on the back of my head. And then, I urged, in that new excitement which every repetition of the story revived, I had heard it all twenty times since we left New York, but mere repetition could not apparently satisfy me. Then, continued William, the whole world kind of went off like a firecracker, and I come to and ran like I know, said I, cutting him short, for I had become wearied of the invariable profanity which lent a lurid ending to his narrative. After that, I continued, you went through the rent in the mountains? Sure. And you saw a dingo and a creature that resembled a mammoth? Sure, he repeated sulkily. And you saw something else. I always asked this question. It fascinated me to see the sullen fright flicker in William's eyes, and the mechanical backward glance, as though what he had seen might still be behind him. He had never answered this third question but once, 
and that time he fairly snarled in my face as he growled, I seen what no Christian ought to see. So when I repeated, And you saw something else, William? He gave me a wicked, frightened leer, and shuffled off to feed the mules. Flattery, entreaties, threats left him unmoved. He never told me what the third thing was that he had seen behind the Hudson Mountains. William had retired to mix up with his mules. I resumed my binoculars and my silent inspection of the great, smooth path left by the Graham Glacier, when something or other exploded that vast mass of ice into vapor. The arid plain wound out from the unknown country like a river. And I thought then and think now, that when the glacier was blown into vapor, the vapor descended in the most terrific rain the world has ever seen, and poured through the newly blasted mountain gateway, sweeping the earth to bedrock. To corroborate this theory, miles to the southward, I could see the debris winding out across the land towards Wellman Bay but as the terminal moraine and the vanished glacier formerly ended there, I could not be certain that my theory was correct. Owing to the formation of the mountains, I could not see more than half a mile into the unknown country. What I could see appeared to be nothing but the continuation of the glacier's path, scored out by the cloudburst, and swept as smooth as a floor. Sitting there, my heart beating heavily with excitement, I looked through the evening glow at the endless, pine-crowned mountain wall with its giant's gateway pierced for me. And I thought of all the explorers and the unknown heroes, trappers, Indians, humble naturalists, perhaps, who had attempted to scale that sheer barricade and had died there, or failed, beaten back from those eternal cliffs. Eternal? No. For the Eternal himself had struck the rock, and it had sprung asunder, thundering obedience. In the still evening air, the smoke from the fire below mounted in a straight, slender pillar, like the smoke from those ancient altars builded before the first blood had been shed on earth. The evening wind stirred the pines. A tiny spring brook made thin harmony among the rocks, a murmur, came from the quiet camp. It was William adjuring his mules. In the deepening twilight I descended the hillock, stepping cautiously among the rocks. Then, suddenly, as I stood outside the reddening ring of firelight, far in the depths of the unknown country, far behind the mountain wall, a sound grew on the quiet air. William heard it and turned his face to the mountains. The sound faded to a vibration which was felt, not heard. Then once more I began to divine a vibration in the air, gathering in distant volume until it became a sound, lasting the space of a spoken word, fading to vibration, then silence. Was it a cry? I looked at William inquiringly. He had quietly fainted away. I got him to the little brook and poked his head into the icy water, and after a while he sat up pluckily. To an indignant question he replied, 
Nah, I ain't a-cussin' you. Let me be, or I'll have fits. Was it that sound that scared you? I asked. Yes, he replied with a dauntless shiver. Was it the voice of the mammoth? I persisted excitedly. Speak, William, or I'll drag you about and kick you. He replied that it was neither a mammoth nor a dingo, and added a strong request for privacy, which I was obliged to grant, as I could not torture another word out of him. I slept little that night. The exciting proximity of the unknown land was too much for me. But although I lay awake for hours, I heard nothing except the tinkle of water among the rocks and the plover calling from some hidden marsh. At daybreak, I shot a ptarmigan which had walked into camp, and the shot set the echoes yelling among the mountains. William, sullen and heavy-eyed, dressed the bird, and we broiled it for breakfast. Neither he nor I alluded to the sound we had heard the night before. He boiled water and cleaned up the mess kit, and I pottered about among the rocks for another ptarmigan. Wearying of this, presently I returned to the mules and William, and sat down for a smoke. It strikes me, I said, that our instructions to await further orders are idiotic, how are we to receive further orders here? William did not know. You don't suppose, said I in sudden disgust, that Miss Small believes there is a summer hotel and daily mail service in the Hudson Mountains? William thought perhaps she did suppose something of the sort. It irritated me beyond measure to find myself at last on the very border of the unknown country and yet checked, held back, by the irresponsible orders of a maiden lady named Small. However, my salary depended upon the whim of that maiden lady, and although I fussed and fumed and glared at the mountains through my glasses, I realized that I could not stir without the permission of Miss Small. At times this grotesque situation became almost unbearable, and I often went away by myself and indulged in fantasies, firing my gun off and pretending I had hit Miss Small by mistake. At such moments I would imagine I was free at last to plunge into the strange country, and I would squat on a rock and dream of bagging my first mammoth. The time passed heavily. The tension increased with each new day. I shot ptarmigan and kept our table supplied with brook trout. William chopped wood, conversed with his mules, and cooked very badly. "'See here,' I said one morning. "'We have been in camp a week today, and I can't stand your cooking another minute.' William, who was washing a saucepan, looked up and begged me sarcastically to accept the cordon bleu. But I know only how to cook eggs, and there were no eggs within some hundred miles.' To get the flavor of the breakfast out of my mouth, I walked up to my favorite hillock and sat down for a smoke. The next moment, however, I was on my feet, cheering excitedly and shouting for William. "'Here come further instructions at last!' I cried, pointing to the southward, where two dots on the grassy plain were imperceptibly moving in our direction. 
"'People on mules,' said William without enthusiasm. "'They must be messengers for us,' I cried in chaste joy. Three cheers for the northward trail, William, "'and the mischief take Miss—' "'Well, never mind now,' I added. "'On them approaching mules,' observed William, "'there is women.' "'I stared at him for a second, "'then attempted to strike him. "'He dodged wearily and repeated his incredible remark. "'Yes, there is women. Two female ladies on them there mules.' "'Bring me my glasses,' I said hoarsely. "'Bring me those glasses, William, because I shall destroy you if you don't.' Somewhat awed by my calm fury, he hastened back to camp and returned with the binoculars. It was a breathless moment. I adjusted the lenses with a steady hand and raised them. "'Now, of all unexpected sights, my fate may reserve for me in the future, I trust,' Nay, I know that none can ever prove as unwelcome as the sight I perceived through my binoculars. For upon the backs of those distant mules were two women, and the first one was Miss Small. Upon her head she wore a helmet, from which fluttered a green veil. Otherwise she was clothed in tweeds, and at moments she beat upon her mule with a thick umbrella. Surfeited with the sickening spectacle, I sat down on a rock and tried to cry. "'I told you so,' observed William, but I was too tired to attack him. When the caravan rode into camp, I was myself again, smilingly prepared for the worst, and I advanced, cap in hand, followed furtively by William. "'Welcome,' I said, violently injecting joy into my voice. Welcome, Professor Small, to the Hudson Mountains. Kindly take my mule, she said, climbing down to Mother Earth. William, I said with dignity, take the lady's mule. Miss Small gave me a stolid glance, then made directly for the campfire, where a kettle of game broth simmered over the coals. The last I saw of her, she was smelling of it, and I turned my back and advanced towards the second lady pilgrim, prepared to be civil until snubbed. Now it is quite certain that never before had William Spike or I beheld so much feminine loveliness in one human body on the back of a mule. She was clad in the daintiest of shooting kilts, yet there was nothing mannish about her except the way she rode the mule, and that only accentuated her adorable femininity. I remembered what Professor Lessard had said about blue stockings, but Miss Dorothy Van Twiller's were grey, turned over at the tops, and disappearing into canvas spats, buckled across a pair of slim shooting boots. "'Welcome,' said I, attempting to restrain a too violent cordiality. "'Welcome, Professor Van Twiller, to the Hudson Mountains.' "'Thank you,' she replied." "'accepting my assistance very sweetly. "'It is a pleasure to meet a human being again.' "'I glanced at Miss Small. "'She was eating game broth, "'but she resembled a human being in a general way. "'I should very much like to wash my hands,' "'said Professor Van Twiller, "'drawing the buckskin gloves from her slim fingers. 
I brought towels and soap and conducted her to the brook. She called to Professor Small to join her, and her voice was crystalline. Professor Small declined, and her voice was Batrachian. She is so hungry, observed Miss Van Twiller. I am very thankful we are here at last, for we've had a horrid time. You see, we neither of us know how to cook. I wondered what they would say to William's cooking, but I held my peace and retired, leaving the little brook to mirror the sweetest face that was ever bathed in water. Chapter 8 That afternoon, our expedition, in two sections, moved forward. The first section comprised myself and all the mules. The second section was commanded by Professor Small, followed by Professor Van Twiller, armed with a tiny shotgun. William, loaded down with the ladies' toilet articles, skulked in the rear. I say skulked. There was no other word for it. So, you're a guide, are you? observed Professor Small, when William, cap in hand, had approached her with well-meant advice. The woods are full of lazy guides. Pick up those Gladstone bags. I'll do the guiding for this expedition. Made cautious by William's humiliation, I associated with the mules exclusively. Nevertheless, Professor Small had her hard eyes on me, and I realized she meant mischief. The encounter took place just as I, driving the five mules, entered the great mountain gateway, thrilled with anticipation which almost amounted to foreboding. As I was about to set foot across the imaginary frontier which divided the world from the unknown land, Professor Small hailed me, and I halted until she came up. "'As commander of this expedition,' she said, somewhat out of breath, I desire to be the first living creature who has ever set foot behind the Graham Glacier. Kindly step aside, young sir. Madam, said I, rigid with disappointment. My guide, William Spike, entered that unknown land a year ago. He says he did, sneered Professor Small. As you like, I replied but it is scarcely generous to forestall the person whose stupidity gave you the clue to this unexplored region. You mean yourself? she asked with a stony stare. I do, said I firmly. Her little hard eyes grew harder, and she clutched her umbrella until the steel ribs crackled. Young man, she said insolently, if I could have gotten rid of you, I should have done so the day I was appointed president. But Professor Farrago refused to resign unless your position was assured, subject, of course, to your good behavior. Frankly, I don't like you, and I consider your views on science ridiculous, and if an opportunity presents itself, I will be most happy to request your resignation. Kindly collect your mules and follow me." Mortified beyond measure, I collected my mules and followed my president into the strange country behind the Hudson Mountains. I, who had aspired to lead, compelled to follow in the rear, driving mules. The journey was monotonous at first, but we shortly ascended a ridge from which we could see, 
stretching out below us, the wilderness, where, save the feet of William Spike, no human feet had passed. As for me, tingling with enthusiasm, I forgot my chagrin. I forgot the gross injustice. I forgot my mules. Excelsior! I cried, running up and down the ridge in uncontrollable excitement at the sublime spectacle of forest, mountain, and valley all set with little lakes. Excelsior! repeated an excited voice at my side, and Professor Van Twiller sprang to the ridge beside me, her eyes bright as stars. Exalted, inspired by the mysterious beauty of the view, we clasped hands and ran up and down the grassy ridge. That will do, said Professor Small coldly, as we raced about like a pair of distracted kittens. The chilling voice broke the spell. I dropped Professor Van Twiller's hand and sat down on a boulder, aching with wrath. Late that afternoon we halted beside a tiny lake, deep in the unknown wilderness, where purple and scarlet bergamot choked the shores, and the spruce partridge strutted fearlessly under our very feet. Here we pitched our two tents. The afternoon sun slanted through the pines. The lake glittered. Acres of golden brake perfumed the forest silence, broken only at rare intervals by the distant thunder of a partridge drumming. Professor Small ate heavily, and retired to her tent to lie torpid until evening. William drove the unloaded mules into an intervale full of sun-cured, fragrant grasses. I sat down beside Professor Van Twiller. The wilderness is electric. Once within the influence of its currents, human beings become positively or negatively charged, violently attracting or repelling each other. There is something the matter with this air, said Professor Van Twiller. It makes me feel as though I were desperately enamored of the entire human race. She leaned back against a pine, smiling vaguely, and crossing one knee over the other. Now, I am not bold by temperament, and normally I fear ladies. Therefore, it surprised me to hear myself begin a frivolous cosery replying to her pretty epigrams with epigrams of my own, advancing to the borderland of badinage, fearlessly conducting her and myself over that delicate frontier to meet upon the terrain of undisguised flirtation. It was clear that she was out for a holiday. The seriousness and restraints of twenty-two years she had left behind her in the civilized world, and now, with a shrug of her young shoulders, she unloosed her burden of reticence, dignity, and responsibility, and let the whole load fall with a discreet thud. Even hares go mad in March, she said seriously. I know you intend to flirt with me, and I don't care. Anyway, there's nothing else to do, is there? Suppose, I said solemnly, I should take you behind that big tree and attempt to kiss you. The prospect did not appear to appall her, so I looked around with that sneaking yet conciliatory caution peculiar to young men who are novices in the art. Before I had satisfied myself that neither William nor the mules were observing us, Professor Van Twiller rose to her feet, 
and took a short step backward. Let's set traps for a dingo, she said. Will you? I looked at the big tree undecided. Come on, she said. I'll show you how. And away we went into the woods, she leading, her kilts flashing through the golden half-light. Now I had not the faintest notion how to trap the dingo, but Professor Van Twiller asserted that it formerly fed on the tender tips of the spruce, quoting Darwin as her authority. So we gathered a bushel of spruce tips, piled them on the bank of a little stream, then built a miniature stockade around the bait, a foot high. I roofed this with hemlock, then laboriously whittled out and adjusted a swinging shutter for the entrance, setting it on springy twigs. The dingo, you know, was supposed to live in the water, she said, kneeling beside me over the trap. I took her little hand and thanked her for the information. Doubtless, she said enthusiastically, a dingo will come out of the lake tonight to feed on our spruce tips. Then, she added, we've got him. True, I said earnestly, and pressed her fingers very gently. Her face was turned a little away. I don't remember what she said. I don't remember that she said anything. A faint rose tint stole over her cheek. A few moments later, she said, You must not do that again. It was quite late when we strolled back to camp. Long before we came in sight of the twin tents, we heard a deep voice bawling our names. It was Professor Small, and she pounced upon Dorothy and drove her ignominiously into the tent. As for you, she said in hollow tones, you may explain your conduct at once or place your resignation at my disposal. But somehow or other, I appeared to be temporarily lost to shame, and I only smiled at my infuriated president and entered my own tent with a step that was distinctly frolicsome. Billy, said I to William Spike, who regarded me morosely from the depths of the tent, I'm going out to bag a mammoth tomorrow, so kindly clean my elephant gun and bring an axe to chop out the tusks. That night, Professor Small complained bitterly of the cooking, but as neither Dorothy nor I knew how to improve it, she revenged herself on us by eating everything on the table and retiring to bed, taking Dorothy with her. I could not sleep very well. The mosquitoes were intrusive and Professor Small dreamed she was a pack of wolves and yelped in her sleep. "'Bird, ain't she?' said William, roused from slumber by her weird noises. Dorothy, much frightened, crawled out of her tent, where her blanket-mate still dreamed dyspeptically, and William and I made her comfortable by the campfire. "'It takes a pretty girl to look pretty half asleep in a blanket. Are you—' Sure you were quite well? I asked her. To make sure, I tested her pulse. For an hour, it varied more or less, but without alarming either of us. Then she went back to bed, and I sat alone by the campfire. Towards midnight, I suddenly began to feel that strange, distant vibration that I had once before felt. As before, the vibration grew on the still air, increasing in volume until it became a sound, 
then died out into silence. I rose and stole into my tent. William, white as death, lay in his corner, weeping in his sleep. I roused him remorselessly, and he sat up scowling, but refused to tell me what he had been dreaming. Was it about that third thing you saw? I began. But he snarled up at me like a startled animal, and I was obliged to go to bed and toss about and speculate. The next morning, it rained. Dorothy and I visited our dingo trap, but found nothing in it. We were inclined, however, to stay out in the rain behind a big tree. But Professor Small vetoed that proposition and sent me off to supply the larder with fresh meat. I returned, mad and wet, with a dozen partridges and a white hare, brown at that season, and William cooked them vilely. "'I can taste the feathers!' said Professor Small indignantly. "'There is no accounting for taste,' I said with a polite gesture of deprecation. "'Personally, I find the feathers unpalatable.' "'You may hand in your resignation this evening,' cried Professor Small, in hollow tones of passion. I passed her the pancakes with a cheerful smile, and flippantly pressed the hand next me. Unexpectedly, it proved to be William's sticky fist, and Dorothy and I laughed until her tears ran into Professor Small's coffee cup, an accident which kindled her wrath to red heat, and she requested my resignation five times during the evening. The next day it rained again, more or less. Professor Small complained of the cooking, demanded my resignation, and finally marched out to explore, lugging the reluctant William with her. Dorothy and I sat down behind the largest tree we could find. I don't remember what we were saying when a peculiar sound interrupted us, and we listened earnestly. It was like a bell in the woods. Ding-dong, ding-dong, ding-dong. A low, mellow, golden harmony, coming nearer, then stopping. I clasped Dorothy in my arms in my excitement. It is the note of the dingu, I whispered, and that explains its name, handed down from remote ages along with the names of the behemoth and the coney. It was because of its bell-like cry that it was named. Darling, I cried, forgetting our short acquaintance. We have made a discovery that the whole world will ring with. Hand in hand, we tiptoed through the forest to our trap. There was something in it that took fright at our approach and rushed panic-stricken round and round the interior of the trap, uttering its alarm note, which sounded like the jangling of a whole string of bells. I seized the strangely beautiful creature. It neither attempted to bite nor scratch, but crouched in my arms, trembling and eyeing me. Delighted with the lovely tame animal, we bore it tenderly back to the camp and placed it on my blanket. Hand in hand, we stood before it, awed by the sight of this beast, so long believed to be extinct. It is too good to be true, sighed Dorothy, clasping her white hands under her chin and gazing at the dingu in rapture. Yes, said I solemnly. You and I, my child, are face to face with the fabled dingu, dingus solitarius. 
Let us continue to gaze at it, reverently, prayerfully, humbly. Dorothy yawned, probably with excitement. We were still mutely adoring the dingoo when Professor Small burst into the tent at a hand gallop, bawling hoarsely for her Kodak and notebook. Dorothy seized her triumphantly by the arm and pointed at the dingoo, which appeared to be frightened to death. What? cried Professor Small scornfully. That? A dingoo? Rubbish. Madam, I said firmly, it is a dingoo. It's a monodactyl. See? It has but a single toe. Bosh! she retorted. It's got four. Four? I repeated blankly. Yes, one on each foot. Of course, I said. You didn't suppose a monodactyl meant a beast with one leg and one toe? But she laughed hatefully and declared it was a woodchuck. We squabbled for a while until I saw the significance of her attitude. The unfortunate woman wished to find a dingo first and be accredited with the discovery. I lifted the dingo in both hands and shook the creature gently, until the chiming ding-dong of its protestations filled our ears like sweet bells jangled out of tune. Pale with rage at this final proof of the dingo's identity, she seized her camera and notebook. I haven't any time to waste over that musical woodchuck, she shouted, and bounced out of the tent. What have you discovered, dear? cried Dorothy, running after her. A mammoth, bawled Professor Small triumphantly, and I'm going to photograph him. Neither Dorothy nor I believed her. We watched the flight of the infatuated woman in silence. And now, at last, the tragic shadow falls over my paper as I write. I was never passionately attached to Professor Small, yet I would gladly refrain from chronicling this episode that must follow, if, as I have hitherto attempted, I succeed in sticking to the unornamented truth. I have said that neither Dorothy nor I believed her. I don't know why, unless it was that we had not yet made up our minds to believe that the mammoth still existed on earth. So when Professor Small disappeared in the forest, scuttling through the underbrush like a demoralized hen, we viewed her flight with unconcern. There was a large tree in the neighborhood, a pleasant shelter in case of rain. So we sat down behind it, although the sun was shining fiercely. It was one of those peaceful afternoons in the wilderness when the whole forest dreams, and the shadows are asleep, and every little leaflet takes a nap. Under the still treetops, the dappled sunlight, motionless, soaked the sod. The forest flies no longer whirled in circles, but sat, sunning their wings on slender twig tips. The heat was sweet and spicy. The sun drew out the delicate essence of gum and sap, warming volatile juices until they exhaled through the aromatic bark. The sun went down into the wilderness. The forest stirred in its sleep. A fish splashed in the lake. The spell was broken. Presently the wind began to rise somewhere far away in the unknown land. I heard it coming nearer, nearer. 
a brisk wind that grew heavier and blew harder as it neared us, a gale that swept distant branches, a furious gale that set limbs clashing and cracking nearer and nearer, crack, and the gale grew to a hurricane, trampling trees like dead twigs, crack, crackle, crash, crash. Was it the wind? With the roaring in my ears, I sprang up, staring into the forest vista, and at the same instant, out of the crashing forest, sped Professor Small, skirts tucked up, thin legs flying like bicycle spokes. I shouted, but the crashing drowned my voice. Then, all at once, the solid earth began to shake, and with the rush and roar of a tornado, a gigantic living thing burst out of the forest before our eyes, a vast shadowy bulk that rocked and rolled along, mowing down trees in its course. Two great crescents of ivory curved from its head. Its back swept through the tossing treetops. Once it bellowed like a gun fired from a high bastion. The apparition passed with the noise of thunder rolling on towards the ends of the earth. Crack! Crash! went the trees. The tempest swept away in a rolling volley of reports, distant, more distant, until long after the tumult had deadened, then ceased. The stunned forest echoed with the fall of mangled branches slowly dropping. That evening, an agitated young couple sat close together in the deserted camp, calling timidly at intervals for Professor Small and William Spike. I say timidly because it is correct. We did not care to have a mammoth respond to our calls. The lurking echoes across the lake answered our cries. The full moon came up over the forest to look at us. We were not much to look at. Dorothy was moistening my shoulder with unfeigned tears, and I, afraid to light the fire, sat hunched up under the common blanket wildly examining the darkness around us. Chilled to the spinal marrow, I watched the gray lights whiten in the east. A single bird awoke in the wilderness. I saw the nearer trees looming in the mist and the silver fog rolling on the lake. All night long, the darkness had vibrated with the strange monotone which I had heard the first night, camping at the gate of the unknown land. My brain seemed to echo that subtle harmony which rings in the auricular labyrinth after sound has ceased. There are ghosts of sound which return to haunt long after the sound is dead. It was these voiceless specters of a voice long dead that stirred the transparent silence, intoning toneless tones. I think I make myself clear. It was an uncanny night. Morning whitened the east. Gray daylight stole into the woods, blotting the shadows to paler tints. It was nearly midday before the sun became visible through the fine-spun web of mist, a pale spot of guilt in the zenith. By this pallid light I labored to strike the two empty tents, gather up our equipments and pack them on our five mules. Dorothy aided me bravely, 
whimpering when I spoke of Professor Small and William Spike, but abating nothing of her industry until we had the mules loaded and I was ready to drive them, heaven knows whither. Where shall we go? quavered Dorothy, sitting on a log with the dingoo in her lap. One thing was certain. This mammoth-ridden land was no place for women, and I told her so. We placed the dingoo in a basket and tied it around the leading mule's neck. Immediately the dingoo, alarmed, began dingling like a cowbell. It acted like a charm on the other mules, and they gravely filed off after their leader, following the bell. Dorothy and I, hand in hand, brought up the rear. I shall never forget that scene in the forest, the gray arch of the heavens swimming in mist through which the sun peered shiftily, the tall pines wavering through the fog, the preoccupied mules marching single file, the foggy bell-note of the gentle dingu in its swinging basket, and Dorothy, limp kilts dripping with dew, plodding through the white dusk. We followed the terrible tornado path which the mammoth had left in its wake, but there were no traces of its human victims, neither one jot of Professor Small nor one solitary tittle of William Spike. And now I would be glad to end this chapter if I could. I would gladly leave myself as I was, there, in the misty forest, with an arm encircling the slender body of my little companion, and the mules moving in a monotonous line, and the dingu discreetly jingling. But again, that menacing shadow falls across my page, and truth bids me tell all, and I, the slave of accuracy, must remember my vows as the dauntless disciple of truth. Towards sunset, or that pale parody of sunset which set the forest swimming in a ghastly, colorless haze, the mammoth's trail of ruin brought us suddenly out of the trees to the shore of a great sheet of water. It was a desolate spot. Northward, a chaos of somber peaks rose, piled up like thunderclouds along the horizon. East and south, the darkening wilderness spread like a pall. Westward, crawling out into the mist from our very feet, the gray waste of water moved under the dull sky, and flat waves slapped the squatting rocks, heavy with slime. And now I understood why the trail of the mammoth continued straight into the lake. For on either hand, black, filthy tamarack swamps lay under ghostly sheets of mist. I strove to creep out into the bog, seeking a footing, but the swamp quaked and the smooth surface trembled like jelly in a bowl. A stick thrust into the slime sank into unknown depths. Vaguely alarmed, I gained the firm land again and looked around, believing there was no road open but the desolate trail we had just traversed. But I was in error. Already the leading mule was wading out into the water, and the others, one by one, followed. How wide the lake might be we could not tell, because the band of fog hung across the water like a curtain. 
yet out into this flat, shallow void our mules went steadily, slop, 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 in single file. Already they were growing indistinct in the fog, so I bade Dorothy hasten and take off her shoes and stockings. She was ready before I was, I having to unlace my shooting boots, and she stepped out into the water, kilts fluttering, moving her white feet cautiously. In a moment I was beside her, and we waded forward, sounding the shallow water with our poles. When the water had risen to Dorothy's knees, I hesitated, alarmed. But when we attempted to retrace our steps, we could not find the shore again, for the blank mist shrouded everything, and the water deepened at every step. I halted and listened for the mules. Far away in the fog, I heard a dull splashing, receding as I listened. After a while, all sound died away, and a slow horror stole over me, a horror that froze the little network of veins in every limb. A step to the right, and the water rose to my knees, a step to the left, and the cold, thin circle of the flood chilled my breast. Suddenly Dorothy screamed, and the next moment a far cry answered, a far, sweet cry that seemed to come from the sky, like the rushing harmony of the world's swift winds. Then the curtain of fog before us lighted up from behind, shadows moved on the misty screen, outlines of trees and grassy shores and tiny birds flying. Thrown on the vapory curtain in silhouette, a man and a woman passed under the lovely trees, arms about each other's necks. Near them the shadows of five mules grazed peacefully. A dingo gambled close by. It is a mirage, I muttered, but my voice made no sound. Slowly the light behind the fog died out. The vapor around us turned to rose, then dissolved, while mile on mile of a limitless sea spread away, till, like a quick line penciled at a stroke, the horizon cut sky and sea in half, and before us lay an ocean from which towered a mountain of snow, or a gigantic berg of milky ice, for it was moving. Good heavens, I shrieked, it is alive! At the sound of my crazed cry, the mountain of snow became a pillar, towering to the clouds, and a wave of golden glory drenched the figure to its knees. Figure? Yes for a colossal arm shot across the sky, then curved back in exquisite grace to a head of awful beauty. A woman's head, with eyes like the blue lake of heaven. High, a woman's splendid form, upright from the sky to the earth, knee-deep in the sea. The evening clouds drifted across her brow. Her shimmering hair lighted the world beneath with sunset. Then, shading her white brow with one hand, she bent, and with the other hand, dipped in the sea, she sent a wave rolling at us. Straight out of the horizon it sped, a ripple that grew to a wave, then to a furious breaker which caught us up in a whirl of foam, bearing us onward faster, 
faster, swiftly flying through leagues of spray, until consciousness ceased and all was blank. Yet ere my senses fled, I heard again that strange cry, that sweet, thrilling harmony rushing out over the foaming waters, filling earth and sky with its soundless vibrations. And I knew it was the hail of the Spirit of the North warning us back to life again. Looking back now, over the days that passed before we staggered into the Hudson Bay outpost at Gravel Cove, I am inclined to believe that neither Dorothy nor I were clothed entirely in our proper minds. Or if we were, our minds, no doubt, must have been in the same condition as our clothing. I remember shooting ptarmigan, and that we ate them. Flashes of memory recall the steady downpour of rain through the endless twilight of shaggy forests, dim days on the foggy tundra, mud holes from which the wild ducks rose in thousands, then the stunted hemlocks, then the forest again. And I do not even recall the moment when at last, stumbling into the smooth path left by the Graham Glacier, we crawled through the mountain wall, out of the unknown land, and once more into a world protected by the Lord Almighty. A hunting party of Elban Indians brought us into the post, and everybody was most kind, that I remember, just before going into several weeks of unpleasant delirium mercifully mitigated with unconsciousness. Curiously enough, Professor Van Twiller was not very much battered, physically, for I had carried her for days, pickaback. But the awful experience had produced a shock, which resulted in a nervous condition that lasted so long after she returned to New York that the wealthy and eminent specialist who attended her insisted upon taking her to the Riviera and marrying her. I sometimes wonder, but, as I have said, such reflections have no place in these austere pages. However, anybody, I fancy, is at liberty to speculate upon the fate of the late Professor Small and William Spike, and upon the mules and the gentle dingo. Personally, I am convinced that the suggestive silhouettes I saw on that ghastly curtain of fog were cast by beautified beings in some earthly paradise, a mirage of bliss of which we caught but the colorless shadow shapes floating twixt sea and sky. At all events, neither Professor Small nor William Spike ever returned. No exploring expedition has found a trace of mule or lady, of William or the dingo. The next expedition to be organized by Barnard College may penetrate still farther. I suppose that when the time comes, I shall be expected to volunteer. But Professor Van Twiller is married, and William and Professor Small ought to be. And altogether, considering the mammoth and that gigantic and splendid apparition that bent from the zenith to the ocean and sent a tidal wave rolling from the palm of one white hand, I say taking all these various matters under consideration, I think I shall decide to remain in New York and continue writing for the scientific periodicals. Besides, the mortifying experience at the Paris Exposition 
has dampened even my perennially youthful enthusiasm. And as for the late expedition to Florida, heaven knows I am ready to repeat it. Nay, I am already forming a plan for the rescue. But though I am prepared to encounter any danger for the sake of my beloved superior, Professor Farrago, I do not feel inclined to commit indiscretions in order to pry into secrets, which, as I regard it, concern Professor Small and William Spike alone. But all of this is, in a measure, premature. What I now have to relate is the recital of an eyewitness to that most astonishing scandal which occurred during the recent exposition in Paris. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Beyond the Broken Glacier by Robert W. Chambers. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. And be sure to rate us and review us wherever you listen. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>